Welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough, and with me today is Dr. Amy Price. She is a family physician who has an interest in psychiatry, an interest to the point where she actually wrote a very wonderful review article on bipolar disorders while working at the Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk. And first of all, Dr. Price, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. In talking to you a little bit before we went on air, I want to follow up on the fact that how you got interested in psychiatry as part of your practice. Obviously, you're a family doc and you, you see a lot of things in family practice. What was it that got you interested in things like bipolar disorder and some of these other psychiatric issues? Well, you know, family medicine attracted me because I like to deal with populations that really don't have a, a home in the medical community. In our residency program, we started a refugee clinic, and I was attracted to the Latino population near my residency program, and there was also a really robust community services board, which served psychiatric population in our community. So I put together things that were fun for me, and then my adult life, so to say, has been spent in indigent care, and most of those clients coming in are coming in with general medical conditions, but also a lot of unmet psychiatric needs. And so you you see different patients, and like if we go into the area of bipolar disorders, now we know they're often first diagnosed in adolescence or early adulthood after several years of symptoms. What are those symptoms we should be looking for as family docs? Well, if people are coming in for primary care, they might not actually be there because of their psychiatric disease. They may be there because something else is wrong, anxiety, substance use disorder, or even a general medical condition. And and basically all of those people, just by the fact that they have those conditions, are going to be a little bit higher risk for bipolar disorder than the general population. So it's always good, especially when you're considering treating someone for depression, to think about bipolar disorder in the back of your mind. And And we as family docs treat depression all the time. So we don't want to have that unfortunate surprise of having someone have a bad reaction to an antidepressant, either mania or or just not responding. And, and you know, and again, that's going to be your person that you're going to want to think harder about as having potentially a bipolar type disorder. And tell me a little bit about like some of the symptoms you see. I know they break it down into bipolar 1, bipolar 2, cyclothymia, bipolar disorder, not otherwise specified. And it gets very specific when you look at it. Do you break it down in those groups or do you make a general assessment? How do you approach it? Well, you know, in general, bipolar 1 is someone who has classic euphoric mania. We don't really see them in the primary care world because they are typically going to have been diagnosed in the acute phase, typically in a hospital setting because whatever presentation they make with that mania is so dramatic that they end up in an acute care setting. So by far, the more common types of bipolar disorder that I've experienced are more subtle. They're they're people coming in who are depressed. And then when you start digging into their past, oh, well, they have a history of marked instability in their life. They have a substance use disorder. And then when you start digging, you say, well, do you ever go through periods of time where you don't need to sleep? And then the answer is yes. Oh, you know, and, and oh, I thought that was just normal for me. That's how I was built. So that's a great clue. The other thing that would clue me in, you know, and again, the populations that I tend to serve are maybe distinct from a suburban primary care practice. But I would see clients who 
were very bright, very intelligent, but were failing socially. Someone who'd been through college, even had a, you know, had graduate degrees, but they're not able to hold a job down. And they're wondering why they don't have long-term relationships with people. You know, a lot of what I'm talking about, too, sort of can also be represented by borderline personality disorder, which is something that's probably reserved for another conversation. But that's in the differential diagnosis you know, the things we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And when, when you look at their personal history, I guess you see things like the divorces, drug abuse, mm-hmm. as you say, legal financial problems. There's a lot of, lot of issues like that. Not that everyone who is divorced has instability, but certainly things where there, it's difficult time continuing with a consistent basis on things. There's a lot of change. Exactly. Yeah. Someone who's been divorced, that's not a red flag, but they're divorced. They live alone. They had a career. They no longer have it. They've moved many times. Those are sort of the, the compounding effect of different single factors that's going to start to clue you in. I approach things very practically as a family doc and then someone who works with people who have limited access to care. In my mind, when I'm talking to someone that I think has bipolar disorder, you know, and you think about the genetic spectrum that I tend to believe more in a spectrum of disease ranging from borderline personality disorder to bipolar disorder to even some of the schizophrenia has been linked genetically, all three of those in broad categories. And in some ways, I feel like our words and the diagnostic criteria can fail us. If, for instance, my perception of what those criteria for a manic episode are are different from the patients, maybe they don't explain to me exactly like it's written in the DSM-5. <laughs> right. You know, we don't, they don't know our language. And so very practically, if things seem to be that way and they are a candidate for medication, one really great thing about the limitations of the pharmaceutical armamentarium is that even in major depressive disorder, a lot of the mood stabilizers are used as adjunctive treatment. So some real nuts and bolts, nitty-gritty things, Bipolar disorder tends to present with depression. People with bipolar disorder who are depressed are generally going to respond better to a mood stabilizer for their depression than an antidepressant. My clinical experience is sort of all over the map on that, though. I I would have to say, you know, in my the psychiatric practice that I work in, every one of us as mental health providers uses antidepressants in our bipolar Science. We we question that use. We know that there's evidence to suggest that it's not effective, and yet we're we're treating individual patients, not broad-based population studies. So I think that's a, you know, again, a, just a great pearl and take-home point about treating bipolar disorder. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough, and I'm speaking with Dr. Amy Price. We're talking about bipolar disorders. Let's say we diagnose someone or you strongly believe someone has bipolar disorder. And you mentioned, first of all, in treatment, you may not want to begin with an antidepressant because of the risk. Let's talk about that first. What are the concerns of starting with an antidepressant as opposed to maybe like an atypical antipsychotic or something? So people with bipolar disorder... You know, let's assume that the patient actually has it. People with bipolar disorder are going to do better over time on mood-stabilizing therapy. That is the treatment. Antidepressant medication is not the treatment for bipolar disorder. It's mood-stabilizer therapy. And those, classically, it's lithium. 
then also moving into the anticonvulsants like Depakote, carbamazepine, and even some of the ones with less evidence, and then also the antipsychotics. So typical antipsychotics, Haldol used very rarely now in bipolar disorder unless it's in the acute phase, and then the atypical antipsychotics, Zyprexa, Risperdal, and Seroquel are the ones used most often. So the mood stabilizer therapy is the most effective treatment. The evidence points to that. And then antidepressant therapy would be used when patients don't have resolution of their depressive symptoms. Or you're treating a concomitant anxiety disorder. You would use the SSRI class to treat their anxiety or their panic disorder. It's really hard when you're thinking of the sum total of a person. Sometimes it's hard with someone who tends to run a little hot, almost like a hypomanic person, and that hypomania is colored by depression. Not it's, It wouldn't meet criteria for a mixed episode, but it's someone who's got depression with energy. Um, it's hard to tease out whether or not that's anxiety or it's their bipolar in a flare. What do you do in that case? Well, you treat the patient. Having taken care of people with bipolar disorder for years, we adjust medications often. And just like people will fatigue having been on the same SSRI for a couple of years and all of a sudden it seems to lose effectiveness, people tend to tend to have the same experience with mood stabilizers in my experience or the side effects become so great. I have a patient who's in her mid-40s, well-controlled on lithium for about the last 10 years, and her creatinine is rising. So we're going to have to look at switching off in the interest of her renal health. Or the patient on multiple mood stabilizers, we now know that in the acute phase that a combination of two mood stabilizers is more effective. Most people, once they get better and they get out of that acute phase, I'm really reluctant to take them off to trim their medications. Surgical friend of mine always says the enemy of good is better. And when someone's doing okay, with antipsychotics, we want to look at lowering the dose to the lowest possible dose to manage their symptoms. On the other hand, talking with a patient who's finally stable after a really terrible either depression or manic episode, they don't want to change their medications either. So it's a it's a constant negotiation. And again, I think the bottom line is it is very much an art and a willingness to accept that we don't know all the answers with psychotropic medications. Would you start normally with lithium? Is that kind of the go-to first, or are you starting with something like Depakote? Where, what direction do you usually go? And again, I know it's individual. Well, that's a great question. For me, in my experience, one of the best medications to start with when I see a person coming in, and let's say they're depressed, and they're, in, they're generally stable, their their function is poor because of their depression, but they you know, they're in their mid-30s, they've lived with this for a long time, and it's clear that they had a defining episode that's going to put them in criteria for bipolar disorder. And by far the more common one is a hypomanic episode. So we talk about medications. Lamictal is my drug of choice. And the reason for that is that of all of the mood stabilizers, it has the fewest cognitive effects. 
Um, for the most part, people are going to stop medications, be less compliant, have less quality of life because of a decrease in their cognitive abilities. Lithium is famous for that. The anticonvulsants, Depakote, carbamazepine, they just make people feel slow and dull. Probably if you've had a client with schizophrenia, we, we all associate the typical antipsychotic with sort of a dulling of the senses and know those stories from medical school where the people were brought in to get their depot Haldol or depot Risperdal and otherwise compliance was really limited. But you got to think about that now too with bipolar uh, patients with bipolar disorder who are normally going to be pretty high functioning and very intelligent people. And then we're going to give them a drug that makes them unable to complete a sentence. And I guess with the Lamictal, you kind of got to start slow and titrate, I suppose, right? You do. So there, with Lamictal in particular, there is a rash associated with it that happens in about 10% of people that take it. That rash is not even Johnson. Okay. And so it can come about typically with the increase in the dose. Let's say you go from 50 milligrams to 75 milligrams, and the person develops a rash on the on the trunk and arms. The first step wouldn't be to stop the medication and say, oh, we just averted a Stevens-Johnson disaster. It would be to reduce the dose back to 50 and, and ask the question, is, did the rash go away? And if it did, typically you can get around that rash by just spending a little bit more time at that lower dose and then and then going up. That is not an easy thing to do, sitting in that chair therapeutically, but I can tell you that the other medications have so much weight gain and metabolic disease associated with them that we work really hard to use Lamictal and then to add another mood stabilizer if they need it because the evidence is very good regarding Lamictal's ability to mitigate the weight gain of the other drugs, like an atypical antipsychotic. Well, Dr. Amy Price, we're running out of time. I really want to thank you for taking the time to join us on Primary Care today. It's been a pleasure. It really went fast, too. And thank you for sharing your time with us. It's my pleasure, Brian. Thanks so much for having me on. This is Dr. Brian McDonough. If you missed any or part of this discussion, please visit ReachMD.com slash Today. You can download the podcast. You can learn more on the series. Thank you very much for listening.